chances are that if you grew up in the church and faith was kind of a normal conversation for you, that talking about Jesus, going to church, Sunday school, or something like that, those were all normal experiences. But for those of us that maybe didn't grow up in the church, the first time that you encountered Jesus or somebody coming up to you and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, you know, might have been a fairly uncomfortable a position that you were put in. You're like, I'm not really sure what you mean about this. What, what are the implications here? You know, going up to someone and saying, hey, I'm a Christian, that could mean a lot of different things these days. Like, well, what, what do you mean by that? Like, what kind of Christian are you? What, what brand, you know, do you come from? Because that has all kinds of different and interesting implications. And so it's not necessarily something that seems like one of those rule real comfortable, you know, friendly, neighborly things to talk about or to bring up. And yet, over the past couple weeks, as we've been talking about what it looks like as Christ followers to invite someone into being our neighbor, asking them, hey, won't you be my neighbor? And we've talked about what it looks like to create space in our lives, what it looks like to, you know, base our relationships on God's word and how he tells us to interact with each other and and what it means to view other people as being our neighbors, like that, that includes everyone. Uh, the last thing that we're going to be talking about is the most loving thing that we can possibly do. And so when Jesus affirms that the greatest commandment is loving God with everything, all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, like what is, what is the most loving thing that we can possibly do for another person? We can think of a lot, of a lot of different things. There are some times when maybe, you know, taking someone flowers would be the most loving thing that you could possibly do because you forgot their, your anniversary or something like that. And then maybe that's the thing. But for most of us, like, we would think about some pretty significant things that we could do to help other people. Like, if somebody doesn't have basic needs, the things that they need to survive, maybe the most loving thing we would think to do is to help provide those things for that person. Or maybe somebody's going through a really dark and troubled time in their life, and so mentally, emotionally, physically, they need to heal. And so maybe the most loving thing that we could do in that moment is to help them through that and help them, help them to heal. And that's how we provide love to someone. And so those are hugely significant things, and all things that Jesus commands us to do, he tells us to be a part of, even structures the church in such a way that we can help to provide uh, some of those ways to show love to one another. But even those things are not the greatest love that we can share with another person. The greatest love that we can share with another human being, with our neighbor, is Jesus himself. At some point along the way in our life, uh, it's probably going to come up that we're going to have to say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And maybe hopefully you're not bringing it up just like that, that exact same phraseology, but the greatest, uh, the thing about being a neighbor is that as much as we can show and as much as we can demonstrate godly love to other people, at some point we're going to have to say or we're going to be asked where this love comes from, which leads us to Jesus. Now, there's some good research on this that, that shows that most Christians, the majority of Christians believe and understand like this is the case when it comes to following and living out our faith uh, as, as Christ followers. Almost all, here's some recently released research. Almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus and that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. And so between like 94 and 97% of practicing Christians believe uh, that this is the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. Now, I'm not sure why that's not 100%, but, I, you know, 
uh, maybe there's some uh, different ways that people viewed the question. Uh, if you're f- still wondering about Jesus, you might feel different, differently, but it seems pretty reasonable that most of us would see this as the best thing that could happen to another person. And it's encouraging to know that even in the same research, there's some confidence in people having an answer for someone when it comes to them asking about why they believe what they believe, questions about faith. Um, it ranges among different uh, generational groups between like 73% and 56% of people saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm relatively confident in being able to answer a question about faith. But here's where the data gets interesting. And here's where we start to see kind of a a shift as you look through generational experiences of Christianity and how people have been exposed to things and introduced to Jesus. Almost half of millennials, one of four generational uh, columns that were were asked, almost half, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And there's pretty significant percentages in other generations as well that believe it's wrong to share their faith in the hopes that someone would change their faith to believe in Jesus. It's kind of strange. Being a witness for Jesus, wanting someone to to know Jesus gets two thumbs up, but personally sharing one's personal beliefs with someone in the hopes that they will start following Jesus instead of whoever or whatever they were following before, now, I keep work at work. You know, that's like, uh, that's maybe one step too, too far. Even, even to the unconvinced, that should sound a little strange. And that not really make a whole lot of sense when you take Jesus' teaching, what he modeled for us, and what he expects us and calls us to do. But maybe considering some popular methodologies and how people have shared Jesus with other people would uh, help us to understand maybe where even Christians today are struggling with how to evangelize well when it comes to talking to other people. Uh, one is uh, the bullhorn method. Are you guys familiar with this and how you talk about Jesus? Uh, somebody on a street corner. Like, have, have any of you actually experienced that? Maybe something that we've talked about. And something that I've actually experienced, just a few of us. I've actually seen this and witnessed and seen this happen. And I, I'm, I'm just going to let you know, I've not yet f- personally felt compelled uh, to yell at Jesus, yell at people about Jesus. Uh, yet, through a vocal amplification device, um, it seems to me like being angry and yelling at people doesn't really help them kind of get to know the love of, of Christ all, all that well. Uh, it doesn't really fit in with the whole um, being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And so maybe we've seen that method and think, well, that can't be right. So maybe that, that doesn't, that's not something that I should do. Or may, have you uh, ever seen a, a gospel tract? Have you, you guys ever seen that before? Maybe. Um, so there's one in particular that's my favorite, and by favorite, uh, I mean it's the worst, and it looks like a fake $20 bill. Have you guys seen this? And so here's a picture. Some of you are like, I don't believe this is real, and, and that's fine. Here's a picture of it, so it must be true. And so what you would do is, and this helps you, uh, it helps your wallet when you go out to eat, but instead of leaving an actual tip with money, you would put this fake $20 bill down. And, and, you know, your server would open it up and realize that they've been fooled by you. And that's a great way to show the love of Jesus in their life. Because being jilted out of a tip, you know, is, is a great way to show and love your neighbor as yourself. Really shows the generosity of, of Jesus, right? Okay, I'm not a fan of that one either. Or, or maybe the Jesus juke. 
You guys familiar with this one? This one may be a little bit, you're not sure, but you've probably been exposed to this before. It's when you're having a conversation with someone, and it's relative, uh, relatively uh, innocuous, you know, about uh, just something going on in life, and, and somebody really kind of flips the switch on you and makes it somehow randomly about God or the Bible or something like that. Here, let me give you an example. Hey, man, you know, somebody comes up to you and says, hey, did you catch the game last night? You know, March Madness going on. It was crazy. Did you see the ending? People were going nuts and all that's, uh, all that's crazy. And, and, then, and then you would say something like, yeah, I just wish, you know, people were, were that excited about Jesus. You know, have you ever had anybody do that? It's like they're trying to shame you into, <laughs> you know, into thinking about Jesus or believing in him. That doesn't work really either. And then there's the, the door-to-door method. You guys, you know, we talked about this last week, you know, ring the doorbell. Nobody wants that to happen anymore. And so a sales tactic uh, is not really an invitation into being a neighbor. And so maybe that's part of the problem is that we're really not sure how we should approach it, where we've seen how not to do it. And so the response is, well, I know these are the ways that we shouldn't. And so this must be what it means to invite somebody into being a neighbor or to introduce them to Jesus. But just to be clear, confrontational tactics are not the answer. They mostly draw attention to a lack of love and foster an unfavorable view of Jesus. And this is not what we're called to do when we invite somebody to be our neighbor. Not, not to mention, I think many of us recommend, recognize as time goes on that we're not living in a society or culture anymore that is built on a foundation of assumption of belief where there are a lot of people that we know and that we talk to that not only are not familiar with Jesus, but they're not familiar with church, and they're not familiar with, you know, oh, you remember how Sunday school was? I'm like, no, that's never something that they've experienced. And yet, in all of this, one of the things we know and understand from reading God's words is that the greatest commandment, loving God with everything and loving our neighbor as ourself, is the platform upon which you and I as Christ followers are supposed to be living out the great commission of Jesus and sharing Jesus with our neighbor. Let, let me remind us what, what, that, what that is. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, we're commanded as disciples to make disciples by going intentionally into places and building relationships with people where we might baptize and teach others the good news about Jesus defeating the consequences of fear and death. But I think because of some of the things that we've seen other people do, maybe the assumptions of what it looks like to invite other people to consider Jesus as their Lord, Savior, and King, um, you know, is that we've lost sight of maybe what it looks like to literally love our neighbors in this way based on the great commandment. And I think one of the things that keeps us from doing this and living this out in our life is really just comes down to fear. That we make these kinds of decisions and how we interact with people, whether or not we invite them to be our neighbor or spend the time with them, create space with them, is really a fear-based decision and so here's some things I just want to kind of call out and identify for us that I think are the fears that keep us from being neighbors to others. One is the fear of how we'll be perceived. I mean, let's be honest, there are times where we're thinking about how someone else is going to think or talk about us once we identify ourselves as a Christian. 
And so maybe at work or maybe at school or maybe in our neighborhood, maybe in some other friendships and relationships, we're, we're kind of thinking, you know, what kind of assumptions is this person going to make about me once they know that I'm a Christian? When we understand from Jesus that they're commanded actions that give us feet to loving our neighbor, you know, to a certain degree, at some point, it doesn't matter how we're perceived, that we might be labeled and categorized in an uncomfortable way, and that might seem like a significant obstacle, but it shouldn't be for us. And so I just want to let you know, if, you want to, if there's a way, a really good way to set people at ease, you know, how they perceive you as, as a Christian, um, then, then this is what it is. Just let them know that you're a pastor. Just say that. Because I've found that it really makes, sets people at ease these days. They really open up and they really, you know, are curious about some of you, like, recognize that that's my sarcastic voice, and that's cool. Here's the second fear, fear of not having an explanation. People have been thinking about the nature of faith and belief and its relationship to the human condition for a long time. And even though, um, for example, like the experiment of unbelief is, is relatively young, there are many, so many nuanced questions about life and about faith and about experiences. And it, they're expressed in so many different ways that it can be overwhelming to consider and to wonder whether or not if you start a conversation with someone about Jesus that you're going to be able to finish it. Some things Google and Wikipedia, you know, are, are just not going to be able to answer for you in those moments. And sometimes we have a fear of not being able to have an answer. And then the last one, and I think the one that encompasses all of these things and probably is the most significant, is fear of the mess. And so I don't know if you noticed this in your life, but um, people are prone to getting themselves into pretty significant messes. Have you, have you seen that before? No? Okay. For the record, uh, Christians are just as good as getting themselves into messes as, as just about anyone else. And we know, and I know, exactly what it feels like to deal with our own junk. Some of the things that we get ourselves into, some of the things that happen to us, we know what it's like to deal with those things. And so the thought of inviting someone else's mess into our lives just seems and can seem so overwhelming. So yeah, I'm supposed to invite people into my life and stuff, but that's going to take time. And man, they're, they've made some really bad decisions or there's some crazy things that have happened to them that I really just don't want to have to put up with or deal with in our lives. And so we have fear of the mess. And here's the, here's the thing though. The way that God has wired us and he has designed us and the way that he has set up life is that his intention is for us to have these amazing, supportive, encouraging relationships that, that if we keep ourselves from them by fear-based decision-making, that we really just turn relationships into fragile and fickle caricatures of what God has intended in our lives. See, loving our neighbor in order for them to have the opportunity to choose God with every, to choose to love God with everything is both our method, it's how we're supposed to go about things, and it's our mandate. We're commanded to do this in Jesus' name, despite of and even in the face of some fears that we may have that keep us from doing this. And one of the things that's really clear, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, which I'm going to read a passage from that in just, just a second, is that the early church grew and thrived during times in which you would not expect them to. 
And so when, per, first, when Peter writes this letter, for example, he's writing at a time when Jews who have converted to Christianity and following Jesus, they're viewed as blasphemers by the rest of the Israelite nation. They're living in an empire, the Roman Empire, at a time where they were considered to be pagans because they were monotheistic. And so any kind of uh, you know, social status or political status or neighborhood status or marketplace status that other people would enjoy, Christians did not have whatsoever. And so it's with this in mind that Peter writes, writes this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. He says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so as we live Jesus-directed lives and strive to do the good and right thing by our neighbors, even if our godly efforts result in rejection or discomfort, even if we might suffer, it's better to suffer for doing what's good in God's eyes among others than to succumb to a fear-based status quo in our life and relationships. See, asking someone to, you know, won't you be my neighbor, it creates the foundation for someone to move from a stranger to maybe even an acquaintance, to maybe even having a real relationship with them, to hopefully maybe one day they might become a brother and sister in Christ. I mean, that's the ultimate hope is that our neighboring or our neighbors are there, our neighbors with us for an eternity because eternity is what hangs in the balance when it comes to this type of a relationship we're called to. And so here are some things I just want to encourage us on as Christ followers as we're seeking to love our neighbor literally in our lives. Here are some ways to push past some of the fears that we perceive that we have. And the first one is the fear and how we're perceived. One of the things that we, we need to understand as Christ followers when we're living out our faith is that if people are rejecting us or seeing us in a way in which we feel uncomfortable with, it's not really us when we're living out the great commandment literally loving God with everything and loving our neighbor as ourself. It's not really us that they're rejecting. It's, it's Jesus. At least that's, that's the goal in how we live out our lives among other people is that they see Jesus. John, uh, in John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says this point blank to the disciples. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And so regardless of how other people might think about you or what they may say about you uh, and how they perceive you, while our actions matter and ought to be done with gentleness and respect, absolutely, how we're perceived is a small price to pay for when we're being faithful. So here's the second one, the second fear and whether or not you have an explanation, how to push past that. Um, nobody has all the answers all the time. Nobody has an explanation for everything all the time. And if you're concerned with being Johnny on the spot with your answers all the time and having the perfect response, I mean, the issue may be that it's kind of a fear-based thing with those conversations that you're more concerned with winning a conversation or being right than you are about the relationship with the other person. Neighbors have conversations that go on for years because there's a relationship there. And so you might pick up where you left off, you know, the, the day before, or it might be something that you just rehash, you know, year after year, tell the same stories. And it might be 
that somewhere along the line, there's something life-changing that happens where there's an experience that changes the conversation and allows us to be able to share Jesus in ways that uh, maybe we weren't able to to begin with. But when it comes to knowing how to answer uh, when it comes to your faith, I mean, the fact of the matter is you're never going to know the answers to the questions you won't allow yourself to be asked by another person. And so you've got to be able to be, you've got to be willing to be in those kind of conversations with people and to w- walk alongside of those things, even with stuff that you don't know the answers to. Because here's the thing that matters. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Peter says, hey, always be prepared to give an answer for the, for the hope that you have. Well, we all already have that answer as Christians. It's the thing that we went all in with when we decided to believe in Jesus as our Lord, Savior, and King. That's the hope, that's the answer to the hope that we have, and that's what we're called to point people to, even if we don't have every answer to every question that somebody might ask us. And here's the third thing when it comes to stepping into the mess and and pushing past this fear. Again, it's just looking at Jesus and how he treats us. Jesus came specifically for the mess. In Luke chapter 5, verse 29, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, asking, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." Jesus came specifically for our junk, for our mess. And it's only by wading in and helping people through theirs that we'll be able to experience what it means to fully and literally love our neighbors as ourselves. Because this is how Jesus loves. In 1 John 4, 18, John writes that perfect love drives out fear. And this is the love that is so desperately needed and has been needed throughout history. And always, especially for our time, in the current climate that we live in, we need the love of Jesus, the love that Jesus calls to us to live out and commands us to tell others about. It starts with defining who our neighbor is, loving our neighbor as ourself, and Jesus makes it clear it's everyone. It includes even the people that we don't want to include. It engages others when we create space in our lives to experience and share the word of God and use that as the foundation for our relationships and how we interact with other people. And it continues through relationships that are built on the good that we're all called to do. So I just want to read a description of what this looks like. And this is from the book, The Art of Neighboring, which looks at this great commandment and what it looks like to, to live it out literally. And here's a, here's a small segment from that. The beauty of the art of neighboring is that it's simple and genuine. You don't need to memorize any pitches. You don't need to chart out a master plan for evangelizing your neighborhood. You don't need to worry about having a canned speech in your back pocket. In short, you need not make your neighbors your pet project, make them your friends. You simply need to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and body, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when those things happen, everything falls into place. The goal is to faithfully tell your story, God's story. Then listen to their story and ask God to lead you. Be real, speak from your heart, and let God lead the way. And here, here's the thing, and here's one of the ways that we've tried to model this as a church. I don't know if you've noticed that we have these three rules. Maybe you've seen the sign out there, or maybe you've seen it in your program, where we say no perfect people allowed, no one stands alone, and everyone's story matters. 
And that's, that's something that we hope for our church, hope for you know, who we are and, and how we approach uh, our, our mission. And, and let me just let you know the secret sauce for those rules. And here's what it is. And maybe you see the connection between the three things that we've talked about over the last three weeks and our neighbors and how, how all this fits in. But here's the secret sauce. is those three rules are not just three rules for our church. These are rules for us as individuals to live out as well. It becomes very clear when we think about how Jesus has treated us and the state in which we've been in when Jesus came down to save us from our sins, that we weren't perfect before Jesus came and was part of our mess. And Jesus didn't let us stand alone, even though we had separated ourselves from God because of our sin. And even though in the great scheme of things and how huge the universe is and how much time has passed and how many people have existed, I mean, our stories really don't amount to much in the grand scheme of things, do they? And yet God made them of eternal significance through his son, Jesus. And so this is what we do. This is how we live out loving our neighbors when we take those same rules and apply them to our lives and our relationships and how we treat others. This is how we accomplish our mission as a church for helping people find Jesus and love God. It starts with being willing to be in relationships with people where we can help them so they can see Jesus, so they can learn who God is and why it changes everything for their lives. My hope and prayer for our church, you know, when we think about the Great Commission and we think about how the greatest commandment is the foundation for which, the platform through which we live that Great Commission, is that we all experience what it looks like to make disciples. Is that the people that you have in your life, the opportunity that you may have to go and be in their lives, to baptize them, to teach them, to make, make disciples you know, of them in your life and then to see how that changes their life and changes the lives of the people they're connected with. Man, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what we're all invited into. That's what it looks like to be the church and to love literally. Is us to put this into practice in our lives. This is the hope and this is the love and this is the joy, this is the peace that Jesus offers us. And we have it. And so now it's our turn to invite others into being our neighbors so we can share it. Let me pray for our, our time uh, before communion. God, we, um, we ask you to give us the wisdom to see the opportunities that we have to share your love with our neighbors. God, give us the, the clarity that we need. Uh, give us the courage. Give us the peace. Um, give us the conviction to recognize that um, people need you, that you are the, the answer and you are the solution, and that we have opportunities each day to share you. God, we praise you for uh, being willing to reconcile us to yourself through your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.